0: This is a Data Privacy Detective. It's early May of 2023. We're looking at the month of April and what's going on. And believe me, there is plenty. And with me uh, every uh, first Thursday of the month are my good colleagues, Mike Natardi and Yugo Nagashima. Thank you both for being with us. You're both members of the Frost Brown Todd uh, Data Security and Privacy Team. And uh, we get together once a month and look at the prior month. So... Uh, Let's 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 start with you, Mike. Yes. what uh, Do these three states have in common in April? Indiana, Montana and Tennessee. Well, that is a fantastic question.
1: And in the month of April, uh, these three states uh, all passed comprehensive data privacy bills. And so they become the seventh, eighth and ninth uh, states in the United States uh, to pass such bills and uh, joining uh, you know, other states like California, Virginia, Utah, Connecticut, and Iowa. Um, and, and this is significant because it just shows uh, that while there is a lag in uh, federal response for a, a comprehensive privacy bill, other states are continuing to, to pass such legislation.
0: That's kind of a continuing, that's, that's the nature of being a federal uh, country, where that's you see exactly states right. do it and then eventually Congress says, well, what do we need overall? Well what do you what do we see in these three states? Are they just copycatting California or other states or what's going on?
1: That's a great question. Actually, there there's there are more similarities here with these three states, with Virginia's uh, comprehensive privacy law than than with California's. There is for both Montana and Indiana, there isn't a revenue threshold in order to, to fall under the statute, but there is a, a number of individuals or consumers data that you might be collecting or, or, or using uh, throughout a year that would get you under a threshold. Uh, Tennessee does have a revenue threshold. But the important thing here is the distinction between California and these other states is that uh, Indiana, Montana, and, and Tennessee are going to be accepting out employees and B2B communications, business-to-business communications.
0: Well, let's pause on that a minute. So anything having to do with an employee and an employer, not covered.
1: That's right.
0: That's and right, B2B, right. so a data sharing agreement, all these sorts of things, not covered.
1: Right. Well, Or importantly, business-to-business communications, email traffic between businesses, phone numbers, addresses, all that's also not going to be covered either.
0: Okay. So it's really individual or personal data that
1: is- Right, it, consumer,
0: it, data, is consumer data, individual Other, consumer data. But outside data, the business uh, context. That's exactly right. Maybe an oversimplification. Okay. Tennessee, I understand, adopted something about NIST, N I S T, and tell us what that is and and why is this interesting.
1: Yes, they they added a requirement that that companies uh, comply with the the NIST privacy framework or other uh, similar privacy frameworks that that contain a uh, similar uh, accountability standards. And why this is important is because it's the first state that has done this. Um. Out of all the the nine states that now have comprehensive privacy laws, even California doesn't have this. And the NIST privacy framework is is something that NIST came out with a couple of years ago, uh, kind of like an add-on. That it's more widely known for its cybersecurity framework, but this is a privacy framework that helps organizations of all size, you know, set up a compliance program to identify you know, what data that they have, and then what, what laws might be applicable to that and how they're going to comply with all the, the various laws. And so here, complying with the privacy framework would be a defense to any uh, allegations of uh, not complying with the law.
0: Very interesting. And NIST is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. So, uh, Hugo, what would you add about these three new states now entering the sweepstakes for what will be the real set of standards throughout the United States on data privacy?
2: Uh, Thanks for uh, inviting me on the show, Joe. Uh, One big trend we're seeing with these three states and also with Iowa, the sixth state, is, as Mike noted, uh, they're following a, I wouldn't say plain vanilla, but they're following a trend towards a towards a certain privacy law. So although we won't say that they're unified, there's some minor differences, the basic consumer rights, the basic framework and obligations of what is required for controllers and processors or businesses and uh, service providers are are becoming more transparent. So we're not having a patchwork anymore, we're starting to see a trend uh, leaning towards Uh, a certain framework of privacy laws and obligations for companies collecting personal information and processing personal information.
0: And, uh, you know, between California and these other states, you're you're red and blue states. It doesn't seem to be a partisan thing at all. And maybe this is laying the groundwork someday for Congress to come up with a bipartisan federal code. That's right. Well, let's turn to the world and and the world of artificial intelligence, AI. I mean, this is front page news these days. This is no longer at all science fiction and HAL running the the space vehicle, you know, 30 years ago. I mean, it's just all over the place. So you go, what are we seeing around the world on how government is beginning to think about how it ought to regulate AI?
2: That is the million dollar question, or billion dollar question. Um, there's a large trillion.
0: Let's just call it <laughs> whatever. Right.
2: Big question. Whatever the large sum of money. Um, well, let's first start with uh, Europe because they tend to lead uh, in the areas of privacy and AI. Uh, in Europe, politicians are calling for new rules, so they're going for a you know government-initiated, uh, top-down approach in regulating AI. Like they did
0: with uh, data privacy, with GDPR.
2: That's right. Of course, in that, there are government officials, there are also politicians, and uh, people in certain institutions, high, uh, high education institutions, that are calling for a pause on the development of powerful AI so that regulations can first be initiated, and then the AI can be worked out within that framework. So that's the first approach. The second approach is how uh we in the United States think about it, uh, which is, let's have the business first develop the technology. And as the technology is developed, let's see what the issues are. And then let's figure out the regulations afterwards. So so it's, it's more of an industry private sector initiated approach. Of course, a lot of people even in the United States, and we notice, uh, you know, Elon Musk is a great example, because he's actually spoken out against AI. And there are other uh, notable individual. I, I believe Bill, Bill Gates as well has said, "Wait, wait, let's let's really think about AI first. But that is what's happening, and this is really um, this huge interest in AI. Even though it existed, machine learning has been a term. This really came about with the creation of the generative AI. Just to explain what the generative AI is, uh, is you
0: know, chat- yeah, AI is such a broad term, it, it, you know, right? But what is generative
2: AI? So. Like the word suggests, you know, it generates something It is capable of generating text, images, or other media in response to a prompt that it then learns and collects the information from. So that is generative AI. It's creating new words, documents, art. That's what we're calling generative AI.
0: And uh, on April 29th, uh, the, the G7 ministers met and they, they discussed these AI risks. What did we learn from that?
2: So, yes, uh, just a Saturday, um, uh, the G7 met in, I believe, Japan, and uh, the ministers of each country discussed how digital infrastructures and G7 ministers can basically work together to imp- implement a human-centric, so this is an OECD principle of controlling AI, a uh, human centric. So we have to think about people first uh, approach of regulating AI. And this is only a kickoff discussion. This doesn't really lay down the rules or anything. But it's setting down the principle that all the G7 countries would agree to following the the OECD principles of human centric uh, development of AI.
0: this was G7, not G20. So China, Russia, India, other countries that weren't part of this. But you see how at least Europe, Japan, U.S. are beginning to think we better get together on this and have a common approach. Is that the bottom line?
2: That's right. Uh, China takes a very different approach. It also takes a a government regulated approach, but, of course, very different from how uh, Europe thinks about it.
0: Active use of, of AI for social credit ratings and surveillance society. Mike, what what uh, what would you add on on this uh, AI question?
1: Well, I think that that uh, you know computers are a tool, and what this is is an attempt to to make sure that the tool doesn't get out of control, uh, doesn't control us instead of us controlling it. Um, and I think it, it's it's smart for for these uh, G seven that you know what I would call freedom loving. Uh, democratic uh, countries realizing that they need to take the leadership and get out ahead of this as, as much as they can before the technology just is, we can't bring it back into the in into the box.
0: Well, I'll share one example before I go to our third topic today. Yesterday, we did a little experiment. Google has a, an AI function called BARD, B-A-R-D, and you can supposedly uh, ask it to write in Shakespearean language, you know, a poem or a sonnet or whatever it may be. So we asked Google Bard to draft an essay on how Trump would present Napoleon's military tactics at Waterloo and to post an image of Trump uh, on the battlefield. Now, the answer was we got back sort of a 10th grade textbook that anybody might have written uh, about uh, Waterloo and Napoleon, but it wasn't in Trump's language. And then it refused to post an image of Trump on the battlefield. Now this has to do with Mr. Trump's privacy. And what's going on here? It declined because it said that would be misinformation to post a photo uh suggesting that he was at Waterloo. He's not that old. So uh, that's what happened. Yes, but this is the, but right now it's totally unregulated, isn't it? And it's it's one of those this is the deep fake question, one of the many questions we now get into. We'll come back to this regularly in our conversation. Well, let's go on to the The third topic, and I'll kick this one off. Now, Utah, part of uh, it, it recently passed a law restricting uh, teenagers, and that's under the age of 18, and there's some teenagers who are 15 and 16 who think they're 37. But anyway, anybody under 18 is a a minor under this law in Utah, and it requires parental consent for any minor to use social media platforms like uh, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and so on. And uh, this raises all sorts of questions. You know, the platform, for example, requires a curfew blocking users uh, under 18 from accessing the account from 1030 at night to 630 a.m. in the morning. I suppose that's Utah time, not Eastern time. And uh, it's a little unclear how this would get enforced not clear to me. It should be maybe if I read more carefully, but how does this get enforced? I mean, some sites you say, click here and to say I'm 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 over 18. Well, how do you know an 11-year-old's not doing? It? I mean, there are all sorts of things going on here. But the privacy question I think this raises is very profound. On the one hand, anybody who's been a parent or had a nephew or niece, for that matter, is concerned about kids. You take... Uh, yeah, young young girls, uh, twelve to fourteen, who uh, have anorexia or bulimia, and and go on the site and get fixated on how thin can I get? I mean, and uh, if you do that, uh, my understanding is uh, the the algorithms will take you to how to uh, how to how to make sure your parents don't find out about your wanting to be thin. I mean, all sort, you know, they, uh, there's a terrible example of. What social media, overdone with the wrong algorithms, can do. So we're concerned about that. On the other hand, whose privacy are we talking about? Are we saying that parents own their children as though they're slaves? And by age fifteen or sixteen or seventeen, they can't begin to express themselves? Really challenging stuff, isn't it? So let me let me get Mike. What are your thoughts on this one? Well, I think that it's it, it's a
1: recognition of of the power of of social media. Um, I would note that it's not just a, a problem, an addictive problem for for children, but also for adults. Um, yes, indeed. And, and, and I think that it's uh, an attempt to try to get our arms around as a society, giving parents a tool maybe to combat this. Uh, but your privacy questions that you raise are, are profound. That's something that I think that we're going to have to pay attention to.
0: Hugo, you your thoughts, please.
2: My thought is... On one hand, as Mike has said, you know, it's giving parents a tool, um, which is great, but the approach is a little, uh, too strong in that not everyone has great parents. Uh, and that's something that the law obviously cannot take into consideration. It gives the parental consent. So that means the parent or the guardian a very strong power. But what if you have bad parents who do not really understand their t- child who has, um, a certain uh, thoughts and, th- and wants to express certain feelings. Uh, for example, if, if they are uh, you know a social minority, their parents may not consent and let them look for certain things. But the child who's a, you know a young adult should be able to express his or her feelings. And another point I wanted to add: uh, this law is um, rather unique in that. It gives the minor account holder a private right of action. Let
0: me interrupt which, you. Who's the minor account holder, the parent or the child or what? Right.
2: And that's a question, you know, I would think it, it would not be the child who would be able to file a lawsuit. So it would be the parent or the guardian. But again, you know, does the parent need that kind of tool? That, that seems a little extreme when the parent already has certain control given by the law to, um, you know. Uh, have a curfew on their child. So it, it's a very unique law, and the damages can go up to uh, two thousand uh, five. it's two thousand five hundred dollars or actual damages if it's greater. So it's a, it's a significant uh, law. so this is this is an aspect that uh, we should keep on following.
0: a lot to think about. Well, it was a busy April. t. s. Eliot called April the cruelest month. I don't know if we'll call it that. May's been a little chilly in a lot of the United States. But a lot going on. We'll come back to it in June. And when we look back at the merry month of May, Mike, Hugo, thank you so much for taking us a tour down April 2023, data security and privacy. And as always, I will remind our listeners, protecting your personal data begins with you. you.